As one approached the battlefield, a sense of impending doom would hang in the air, a palpable tension that foreshadowed the carnage to come. The terrain was diverse, featuring rolling hills, dense forests and open plains, all of which played a crucial role in the unfolding drama of the war. Fields of wheat and sunflowers, once symbols of life and vitality, were now trampled underfoot, replaced by muddy quagmires and the detritus of war. The scars of battle were evident everywhere. Cratered landscapes bore testament to the ferocity of the artillery bombardment, with shattered trees and ruined buildings serving as a sombre reminder of the relentless shelling. Innumerable trenches, hastily dug by soldiers seeking shelter from the ceaseless rain of bullets, snaked their way through the earth like a scar on the face of the land. The stench of death hung heavily in the air, as the corpses of fallen soldiers and horses lay strewn across the battlefield, their pallid faces and empty eyes staring blankly into the sky. The groans of the wounded, left to languish in makeshift field hospitals, pierced the eerie silence of the war-torn landscape. Ravaged villages and towns, their buildings reduced to rubble, added to the desolation of the scene. The shattered remnants of homes and churches served both as a physical and symbolic marker to the toll exacted by the conflict on civilian populations. Inhabitants who had fled were left to weak out a meagre existence amidst the ruins. Their lives forever changed by the horrors that they had witnessed. Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark History Podcast, where we explore the darkest parts of human history. Hope everybody is well, I'm Rob, your host as always. Welcome to the new episode, the Franco-Prussian War, the war that started World War I. The battlefields of the Franco-Prussian War was a harrowing and haunting landscape, marked by the devastation and brutality of 19th century warfare. Stretching across northeastern France, particularly around areas like Sedan and Metz, this war zone bore witness to the clash of two formidable European powers in the summer and autumn of 1870. The war was a clash of industrialised warfare meeting 19th century military tactics. It was a place where old worlds of cavalry charges and colourful uniforms met the new world of rapid-firing rifles and artillery, leaving behind a life scarred by death, destruction and despair. But I'm not bringing it to your attention to be some sort of hipster. Oh no, my dear listeners, this war should be known far and wide and not lost to the pages of time. You see... This war would create scars, wounds and grudges that would fester for decades until the world was set on the path to the war to end all wars and have massive ramifications for the Second World War. So without further ado, please sit back and relax next to the fire for more dark history. 
Europe in 1870 was characterised by the Industrial Revolution, which had begun in the late 18th century. Industrialisation had transformed many aspects of European society, leading to urbanisation, technological advancement and the change in labour force. Major industrial centres had emerged, particularly in Britain, Belgium, France and Germany. Europe was experiencing a rapid technological progress. The spread of railways and telegraph networks facilitated communications and transportation. Specific discoveries and inventions, including the electronic telegraph and the steam engine, were reshaping industry and daily life. For all of this technological and social advancement, Europe was still on a knife edge. By now, Europe was a mosaic of nation-states and empires. Some of the more prominent political entities included the British Empire, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire and the German Confederation. Many regions were still under the rule of monarchies or emperors, and absolute monarchies were not uncommon. The 19th century was a period of rising nationalism across Europe. Various ethnic and culture groups were advocating for greater autonomy or independence from larger empires. This sentiment would eventually lead to the unification of Italy and Germany during this period, as well as nationalist movements in places like Ireland and Poland. In 1870, it was a mere 55 years since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. On the 20th of November 1815, the wars formally ended, bringing peace back to Europe. The Bourbon monarchy was restored once more. Napoleon was exiled to St Helena until his death in 1821. With the signing of the Treaty of Paris, the victors, Britain, France, Spain and Russia, to name a few, began the Congress of Vienna to restore peace to Europe. One player that was at that table was Prussia. Prussia had poked its head above the proverbial parapet. That was the intertwining 39 states of the Holy Roman Empire and cemented itself as Europe's newest and smallest superpower. Small and new it may have been, but Prussia was in no way, shape or form weak. It had joined the Napoleonic Wars in the dying embers of the war to help dismantle the French Empire. At the end of the fighting, Prussia was gifted a piece of the pie, and it became, along with Austria, a huge power in the region, and lifted itself out of the ashes of the Holy Roman Empire. As always in France, the monarchy didn't last long. On the 24th of February 1848, During the February 1848 revolution, King Louis-Philippe abdicated in favour of his nine-year-old grandson, Philippe de Comorne de Paris. Fearful of what had happened to the deposed King Louis XVI, Louis-Philippe quickly left Paris under disguise. He rode in an ordinary cab under the name of Mr Smith. He fled to England with his wife on board a packet boat offered to him by the British consul at Le Havre. The National Assembly of France initially planned to accept young Philippe as king. 
but a strong current of public opinion rejected that. Here, we introduce our first protagonist in this convoluted web of events. On the 26th of February, the Second Republic was proclaimed. Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte was elected president on the 10th of December 1848. Napoleon was the nephew of the OG Napoleon. He was a pompous, ridiculous man who had spent years trying to worm his way into power. Of course, it turned out that the apple didn't fall quite far from the tree. And he was your classic authoritarian. Louis would overthrow the government in a coup in 1851 and declare himself president for life. Then later, in 1852, he declared himself Emperor Napoleon III. The people believed it was the return of absolute French power in Europe, something that had been taken after the Napoleonic Wars. Under Napoleon III, France entered into a hyperactive foreign policy that gave them win after win. The Crimean War saw France slap Russia onto its backside. The Second War of Italian Unification saw Louis-Napoleon humiliate the Austrians and become the guarantor of the Papal States. These wars restored France's prestige in Europe, but they also gave our pompous emperor a false sense of security. He believed his army was unmatched, and the best in the world, and he, a military genius on par with his uncle. And to be fair, he was right. The French army was a behemoth, sporting the cutting edge of military technology. Even the new shiny Prussians were wary of France. France under Napoleon III was mighty. But unfortunately, by 1861, power had begun to fade. France had led an ill-fated invasion of Mexico, forming the Second Mexican Empire. And by 1867, the project had collapsed and the mighty France were kicked in the nuts by a bunch of Mexican irregulars. But why France turned a blind eye to its weaknesses? Others did not. Just across the border, in the German Confederation, the tapestry of independent states, each with their own unique identity, ruler and political system, descended on Frankfurt in 1848. With the fires of nationalism burning, the states wanted to unify into one giant German empire. Something that would bring about the downfall of the mighty Prussia. But in the end, Parliament's dreams were dashed and order was restored. The Prussian king, Frederick Wilhelm IV, declined the proposition to become a hamstrung emperor for the chance to rule his state as an absolute monarch. The year 1852 found this region at a crossroads, as it grappled with political fragmentation, burgeoning nationalism and the early stirrings of industrialization. Germany, as a whole, was a million miles away. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. 
Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. But the collapse of the 1848 revolution did not kill the idea of a unifying Germany. It just came from an unlikely source. Drumroll please. Here is our second protagonist. Otto von Bismarck was your archetypal Prussian conservative. Big, burly, and had a love for his king that was unwavering. 1848 was a giant heart attack of liberalism for Bismarck. By the time he was made Prussian minister president in 1862, he'd had a change of heart. He realised the unified Germany was inevitable, so he needed to make sure Prussia and the capital Berlin were at the seat of power, thus bringing a succession of goading countries into wars and stomping the shit out of them. The Second Schleswig War saw Austria and Prussia team up against Denmark in 1864, taking the disputed Schleswig and Holstein duchies. Then the Seven Weeks War, which saw Prussia turn its artillery on its ally Austria in 1866 leaving Vienna broken and bloody. This also excluded the Habsburgs, the traditional dynastic family of Germany, and it allowed Prussia to gobble up a plethora of Austrian allies. Then Bismarck ordered the states north of the River Main into the Northern German Confederation, with Prussia in charge of course. By 1870, Prussia had become a major player in European politics, something which France did not like. There were numerous mitigating circumstances that contributed to the start of the Franco-Prussian War. Throughout much of the 19th century, the political relationship between Prussia and France was characterised by animosity. Prior to the Prussian Seven-Week War against Austria, Napoleon III had hinted to Bismarck that he may need something in return for France's neutrality in the conflict. Bismarck hinted back that maybe France could take Luxembourg, then part of the German Confederation. When Napoleon came to cash in his chips in March of 1867, Bismarck denied all knowledge of the agreement. This metaphoric slap of Paris almost led to a war and the idea of France marching across the Rhine and punching Prussia square in the nose became a national obsession. Unfortunately for France, by now Prussia wasn't a small, newly formed mishmash of Germanic states. Oh no, it was a tried and tested battle-hardened country, with an equally competent military. Tensions between the two principalities cranked up a notch, in 1868, when Prussia suggested that Leopold, Prince of Hohenzollern, be installed as the new king in Spain. The French authorities, of course, thought this would be as uncomfortable as a piranha enema, and were strongly opposed to this suggestion, due to the potential for Prussian influence to spread to other regions surrounding France. Also, Leopold expressed a lack of interest in attaining the Spanish throne. However, one of the direct causes of the Franco-Prussian War was the alteration of an important document that led to a misunderstanding between France and Prussia. On July the 13th, 1870, 
the French ambassador, accosted the Prussian king at the spare town of Badems and basically demanded him stop being a penis. The king refused, and that was that. But of course it wasn't. The report of the meeting landed on Bismarck's desk, and this became known as the Ems Dispatch. Like a naughty moustache schoolchild, Bismarck purposefully edited the telegram in order to create the impression that insults had been exchanged between the French and the Prussians. France had been looking for an excuse to enter into an armed conflict with Prussia in order to re-establish its influence and power on the continent of Europe. Both the Prussians and the French press fueled the animosity between the two nations by publishing pro-war articles. Despite the depletion of the French army, due to the armed conflicts in other regions of continental Europe, France declared war on Prussia on July 19, 1870. France believed that an alliance with Austria, and maybe even Italy, would come to fruition. France and Austria, who had been mortal enemies for centuries, were now tiptoeing into a pact. But this wasn't the case, and Austria declared neutrality a day after the declaration. On the other hand, Prussia possessed a highly disciplined and much larger military force. Males were conscripted for military service from the entire Prussian population. This allowed the Prussian army to mobilise their troops more effectively through the use of railways. On top of all this, the southern states of Germany, such as Bavaria, that had held out on German unification, finally crumbled and joined the Prussian juggernaut. As war was declared, the world only saw a crushing victory for France. Aside from its advanced military tech, its army was massive, even when you take into account France had men all over the globe, and the rich had paid off recruiters so their sons didn't have to fight. It was still huge. So confident of victory, Napoleon III placed himself as commander of the armed forces. What Napoleon didn't know was his men wouldn't be marching to Berlin, they would be marching to a slaughterhouse. The Germans mobilised so quickly that 350,000 men were at the front line before three weeks had elapsed. The French, on the other hand, were so slow to do so, which gave them a disadvantage which they would never recover from. Hostilities began on August 4th, 1870. 70,000 Germans attacked a small French garrison at Wissembourg. The French, ten times smaller than their attackers, were slaughtered. But this was just a snippet of the nightmare to come. Two days later, the Battle of Worth was the first time the French realised they were not going to Berlin. The army, under Field Marshal Patrice de MacMahon, was smashed. Then following that, Alsace was abandoned, as was Lorraine. So I must interject here. The Franco-Prussian War is a kind of misleading name. It was the Germans as a whole against the French, led by the Prussians. So it makes sense to say that the Germans in general, and the Prussians, when I'm talking about actual Prussians, if you get my drift. Anyway, the next big battle came at mars le -Toire. There, on the 16th of August 1870, 15,000 people were killed, countless more were wounded, and there was a complete retreat of the French army. As I tell you this tale, 
you'd be forgiven to think that the German forces were systematically ripping their way through France unopposed. But this wasn't the case. Germany suffered horribly as well. At mars la the German side suffered staggering casualties. Worse still, at the Battle of Gavalot, on the 18th of August, the Prussians had their first unfortunate meeting with the French rapid-firing weapons, and 8,000 Prussians of the Guard Corps were mowed down in 20 minutes. Alas, even with this seeming extermination of troops, the general tide of the war was with Germany, and the French lost the Battle of Gravelot and were forced to Metz. The catastrophe that befell the French at mars le and Gravelet were nothing compared to what was to come. By the end of the 18th of August, the Army of the Rhine and their leader, Marshal Francois Bazaine were completely cut off in the town of Metz. This was such a catastrophe indeed that Field Marshal McMahon took his army to save them, accompanied by Napoleon III himself. This heroic action would only compound the French misery. On August the 31st, this army was also cut off at the town of Sedan. At sunrise on the 1st of September 1870, Bismarck and the Prussian king took their place on top of the hill to watch the carnage unfold in the war's biggest battle. At 4am, Prussian troops burst into the town to meet the French who had arranged themselves at the citadel. At first, the battle was gritty, with troops battling it out house to house in a bloody stalemate. But then, McMahon was wounded. Two generals, each tried to take command, sending out contradictory orders and dooming the French army to a bloody farce. Men were walking around aimlessly or heading into enemy fire. With the force in disarray, the generals failed to see the Prussian pincer movement catching them in its grip. With this, whatever discipline was left in the French ranks evaporated. As artillery shells rained down on their heads, the French troops stampeded for the fortress. Within this crushing melee, many were killed. By 6pm, Napoleon III acknowledged the inevitable and wrote, By not being able to die in the midst of my troops, it only remains for me to place my sword in your majesty's hand. The next day, Bismarck met the emperor to accept his unconditional surrender. 80,000 troops were taken prisoner, along with the Emperor. Back in Metz, the French calculated they had enough food for 70,000 civilians for three and a half months, and five months worth of provisions for the regular garrison. Because the entire army of the Rhine was trapped in the fortress, the provisions only lasted 41 days, and the oats for 25. The Germans brought up 50 heavy siege guns from Germany and bombarded Metz but the fortress was too heavily stocked with artillery and well built for it to be taken with the means available to the Germans. Unable to silence the fortress guns sufficiently to conduct siege operations, the besiegers opted to starve out the trapped French army. By September, about 25% of the 197,000 strong German siege force still lacked proper accommodation and the sick list in military hospitals grew to 40,000 men. 
the French situation was much worse, with riots breaking out among the starving army and the city residents. On the 20th of October, the food provisions of the fortress ran out, and the French army of the Rhine began to eat horses, which were consumed at the rate of a thousand per day. Bazaine was forced to surrender the entire army on the 27th of October because of starvation. The Prussians offered their honours of war to the defeated French army, but, contrary to usual practice, Bazaine refused. The French, the French, lost 167,000 enlisted men and 6,000 officers were taken to prisoners of war camp on the 27th of October, as well as 20,000 sick who temporarily stayed behind in Metz. Material losses were enormous and amounted to 622 field guns, 2,876 fortress guns, 72 mitrailleuses, 137,000 chest pot rifles, 123,000 other small arms, fast stores of ammunition, and 56 French Imperial Eagles, all were captured by the Germans. In comparison, Germany lost 5,500 enlisted men, 240 officers were killed or wounded, as well as a large number of sick. Even though Napoleon surrendered at Sedan, events at Metz continued. Once word reached Paris of his surrender, he was stripped of his titles and overthrown by the government, bringing the Third French Republic. The Foreign Minister, Jules Favre, was dispatched to offer Bismarck terms, including a payment of 200 million francs. But it turned out Favre misjudged the situation. Rather than negotiating, Bismarck demanded Alsace and Lorraine for the price of peace. Favre, insulted, promptly ended negotiations and continued the war, leading to over four months of fighting and the siege of Paris. The heavily fortified capital was difficult to take with brute force, so the Germans didn't even try. On the 19th of September 1870, the Germans completed its formation of a huge unbroken circle that cut Paris off from the world. The people from surrounding villages had fled into the city for sanctuary, further swelling the population. Only 80 days of food were stockpiled for the entire population. When Metz finally fell, it spelt doom for the city of lights. The last remaining French army had been captured and there was no hope of lifting the siege. The troops inside and around Paris had tried and failed to lift the siege, but it was the army in Metz that was seen as the last bastion of hope, which had now been mercilessly snuffed out. Not long after this, the capital's food stores ran out. Per that with the bone-chilling frigid winter of 1870, and you have one bleak outlook. The city's population, bitten by cold and starved of nutrition, turned to more and more creative means of sustenance. The city's horses were killed and eaten. Next were the zoo animals, then the cats and dogs, and finally people would eat rats, and they were the lucky ones. For the poor of Paris, rat meat had become unaffordable. 
this meal had always been reserved for the lowest of the low, and now it had been catapulted to an unreachable luxury. It was into this cesspit of hunger and frostbite that the first shells began to fall. Bismarck had ordered the bombardment in December of 1870, to the dismay of his advisers, who assured the hunger would force Paris into submission. On the 5th of January 1871, Bismarck ordered hundreds of shells to fall on Paris from dusk till dawn. For a month, they fired every night, raining down some 12,000 shells. Surprisingly, only 97 people were killed in the attack due to the Germans not using explosive shells. But the mental toll on the populace was hell. The gruelling, relentless slog of the winter, no food and now no sleep was almost unbearable. In one final attempt, the French army tried to break the siege. A hundred thousand men went out, but they were beaten back and defeated. After the latest failure, the French government had nowhere to go. On the 27th of January 1871, Paris surrendered. In return for the disarming of the French army and surrender of Paris, Bismarck lifted the siege. In total, 50,000 people had died as a result. At the end of the war, Bismarck, magnanimous in victory, allowed food back into Paris. He also sat at the table with the new French government and talked of peace. But at what cost? Bismarck took Alsace and huge chunks of Lorraine and an eye-watering sum of 5 billion francs. In total, the Franco-Prussian War saw almost a million casualties. Thank you everyone for taking the time out of your day to listen to this dark and rather long episode. With the title and the opening section, I've alluded to World War I and World War II. And yes, I haven't really touched on that yet. Well, you all probably know the story of World War I. The Franco-Prussian War was one of the contributing causes to World War I. Germany gained confidence and increased its aggression as a result of the victory in this war. France wanted to restore its honour and regain the territories of Alsace-Lorraine back from the Germans. These two factors played an important role in the start of World War I. Also, the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, was somewhat crushingly unfair towards Germany. Well, the reason why stems from the treaty that ended the Franco-Prussian War. In 1918, France was out for revenge for the humiliation it endured in 1871. He wanted Germany to suffer. It wanted to crash the mark. It wanted Alsace and Lorraine back. This, in turn, would start the next cycle of violence and birth the rise of the Nazi party. If it wasn't for the Treaty of Frankfurt in 1871, the French would not have unleashed their decades-old festering hatred by making a war in the Balkans a continental-wide fight. It would have not been harsh in 1918. It would not have forced crushing poverty on the Weimar Republic. In fact, the Weimar Republic wouldn't have even existed and we would never have had the rise of a silly little man with a stupid moustache. Not only did this semi-obscure war have ramifications for the world wars, it also forged the creation of the German Empire, 
It gave it the ways and means to mobilise its army rapidly, which we would see the devastating effects in 1914. The war also brought about the unification of Italy. With no French protection for the Pope, King Victor Emmanuel marched into Rome and ended the 1116-year reign of the Papal State and formed the country of Italy. As the spooky season is upon us, the next couple of episodes will come with more of a scary vibe. You will hear about the most gruesome executions people have endured, haunted places, the history behind them, and other terrifying treats. Anyway, that's for another time. Please drop us a review on the show, it helps the podcast out. If you think friends and family may be interested in the podcast, then share it with them. Links to our socials are below. Don't forget, if you want to support the channel, the link to the show's Patreon is also below. I hope you'll be able to support the show, but it's okay if not. The Patreon podcast is now live, and there are four shows up already. As always, if you've been listening for a while and not subscribed, please do it. In that way, you never miss an episode. So with all that out of the way, thank you again for listening. Join us next time for our next episode, as we delve into another event and more dark history.